Okay, so for, formally welcome to everybody. Um, firstly, thank you very much to Antoinette for agreeing to um, host this webinar for us. Um, very briefly, I'll, I'll just introduce the, the, the context of um, what Antoinette is going to take us through. Um, and that, that is um, to look at talent management and the role that coaching can play and the implications for supervision for us for supervision um, many of the coaches that we supervise do support leaders and managers who are either formally or informally part of a wider talent management agenda and so um, we'll be having a look at um, and getting an insight into the role that coaching can play in developing talent within organisations and um, particularly because this is often in the coaching and supervisory system I mean, I know for, for, for me it certainly is. Um, so Antoinette's going to take us through, talk us through her thoughts about that, and then she's going to invite us to collectively consider the implications for us as supervisors. Um, so with that, I will hand over to Antoinette, um, and she will begin. Lovely. Thank you very much, Jackie. Um, hello, everybody. Thank you for having me on this call. Um, yeah, so the role of coaching in talent management. I first um, talked about this at the Association for Coaching Conference um, in 2013. So if you were at that conference and saw me speak, then um, you might not hear anything new, actually. So, <laughs> um, so be aware of that. Um, but what I was focused on then and now is the fact that talent management and succession planning is all about having leaders in place who can do what's needed to deliver the future vision and goals of the organization. Um, and um, probably like me, you see lots of different surveys and lots of different stats. Um, and I'm never sure what the latest is, but most recent surveys have shown that talent management and talent retention is one of the biggest challenges facing HR people and facing organizations. Um, and only a, a number of organizations just don't have the strategy in place to develop that talent. In fact, one survey said that only 29% of senior business leaders said they have a succession candidate in place. 71% said they didn't. So there's something that's not working in the way that succession planning and talent management is handled in most organizations. Um, and it seems that every organization, no matter what its size, is facing massive challenges in developing the talent, the leaders, the successors it needs for the future. And even when they do have people in place, many leaders fall short after moving into higher roles. So I think coaching has a powerful role to play in addressing this issue, and that's really the focus of this call um, and you know, I'd love your thoughts on this um, as it, to add to my own or, or to disagree with my own. Um, and I thought that what would be helpful is to look at firstly um, how coaching can help you engage, retain and develop future leaders, how coaching can ensure future leaders are ready, willing and able to take on new roles and responsibilities, and the three ways that you can use coaching as part of a talent management approach. How does that sound? That sounds wonderful, Antoinette. Okay. Cool. Really interesting, yeah. So let's um, start by looking at how coaching can engage, retain, and develop future leaders. Um, yeah, so, so what's the issue here and why is it important? Well, um, yeah, we've been through a tough economy um, and organizations are seeking competitive advantage through their people more than ever before. We, probably more than anybody, know that people are the key to business success and we're familiar with the research that shows that engaging and enabling employees boosts performance by 15 to 30%. That's one well-known stat. In fact, a recent Gallup survey went so far as to say that organizations that engage their clients and employees show increases of 240% in 
in business-related outcomes. So as ever, you know, you can find any number to support any viewpoint when it comes to statistics. Um, but as people that are focused on developing people, you know, we're <coughs> preaching to the choir um, when it comes to the impact on business results that engaging and enabling people can, can play. Um, but the challenge that I see is that while organizations are focused on maximizing employees' performance, employees are focused on maximizing their careers. And those goals are not always one and the same. You know, I would go so far as to say that employees don't care about their organization. They care about their careers. Now, that's quite a provocative statement. And... In honesty, I should probably say employees don't care about their organization as much as their careers. Um, but really, I don't want to dilute the point. Meaningfulness of work and the fit between a person and their job are two of the key drivers of engagement at work. And in this period of unprecedented change that we have been in and continue to be in, Organizations have been under increasing pressure to do more with less, which has led to flatter structures, expanding roles, and increased workloads. And to be fair to organizations, all of those changes are supposed to be a means to an end. They were intended to help survive the downturn, prepare for the upturn, and develop an organization that will thrive and grow going forward. Um, so more than ever, organizations need to retain the people that they have left and develop them for the future. And organizations continue to manage talent, plan succession, and develop employees. But again, the challenge that I see with that is that they do it behind closed doors in the rarefied atmosphere of the corporate suite. And if you... Um, if you Google Right Management 2010, you'll see the results of another survey that showed that 37% of employees never engage in career discussions with their managers. So as about a third of employees never have any opportunity to discuss their aspirations and are probably brushing up their CVs ready for the next opportunity to come along. So I believe that we're in a situation now where talented employees have undergone huge amounts of uncertainty and change. They've worked harder than ever. They're probably feeling punished rather than rewarded for their efforts. Organizations are trying hard to engage them. You know, they've survived the downturn. They're now trying to you know, move into the upturn and develop the employees they need for the future. And employees care more about their careers than their organization, but no one is talking to them about their aspirations. Or maybe they think they do, but they do it by adding a question at the end of the performance review about where they want to be in two years' time or five years' time, and 80% of the time that question isn't answered because it's not really in the right um, place. The end of a performance review is probably one of the worst times to ask such a question. Um, and frankly, it's a difficult and challenging question to answer, especially at the end of a performance review. So that's the situation that I see um, in a lot of companies. And um, I, I actually saw the impact it had in an organization that I used to work for. Um, before I set up on my own, um, I worked as leadership and OD director for a global insurance company. And so I was responsible for the talent management process. And it was a, a, quite an arduous task. Um, we didn't have the software that is available now. So we had weeks and months of preparation where lots of people filled out lots of forms that ultimately ended up in a group of, well, the board, a group of directors sat around um, a board table in New York, as it happened. 
And um, the talent review meeting was where we were going to agree the succession plan for the people around the table, for the executive board. And so my job was to facilitate the discussion and encourage challenge and debate. And to be honest, the majority of names were agreed easily and they were slotted into the places on the succession plan. But a minority generated quite a lot of discussion. And one of the um, discussions was around the head of property underwriting. Um, this guy in London was quite a character. He was about 55, um, you know, graying hair, ruddy complexion that indicated a life of long, boozy lunches in the city, as was the culture at the time. Um, and the name in the frame as his successor was a well-respected underwriter in the Bermudian office, because the head office was in Bermuda. And there was little dispute about his ability and potential. Um, but as ever, I asked how a move would be perceived by the employee in question. And the director said, don't worry, love, he'll be made up. He's a good bloke, ambitious. His wife doesn't work and his kids aren't at school yet, so there won't be an issue with him moving from Bermuda to London. Well, sure enough, six months later, the head of property underwriting left the company as part of a reorganisation and so his successor got the inevitable tap on the, on the shoulder. And how did he respond? He said, no thanks. I've never wanted the management responsibility that comes with being a head of department. I get a better bonus by being an underwriter, and my wife won't leave her family in Bermuda. So the whole succession plan fell over because it hadn't taken into account the career aspirations of the employee involved. And... I don't know if anyone on the call has ever been on the receiving end of a job move that you didn't want or anticipate, um, but if you did, you probably know how he felt, and you may also understand that the employee decided that since the company clearly had a different view of his future than he did, he'd be better leaving. So this highly talented employee went next door to a competitor. And the point is that talented employees have always managed their careers. So if organizations want to retain them, they need to help them manage their careers within the organization. And the way to do that is by taking employee aspirations into account in the talent review and succession planning processes. But then that's just the starting point. You then have the challenge of developing the individual so that they can take on those new roles and responsibilities and realize their ambitions. So you can see where we're starting to come to the role of coaching. But just before I, I move on to that, I'd be interested in your thoughts on the issue I just outlined and whether that's something that you see in organizations. Um, I, well, um, two or three things, actually. I've, I've never worked in Bermuda, but I've actually coached somebody who's out there at the moment. But I have worked in the city. Uh, and if, if I actually go back um, many, many years ago, one of the questions, this was when I was at the Royal, actually, uh, on the back of the appraisal was, well, where do you want to be in three years' time? Mm. And at that time, there wasn't much progression, even though the structures weren't as they are now. Uh, and... And it became a bit of a joke because, you know, three years later, most of the sales team were still in the same position as they were before. Mm. So that actually um, uh, reduced morale and everything else. Mm. Um, now, obviously, now you've got Generation Y who have their own ideas on things as well. So um, the situation's probably even more difficult. Mm. You were mentioning about closed doors. Well, if you open the doors, and it's, it's a real tricky area, isn't it? Because if people are aware that they're on a list but somebody isn't, mm. um, it means generally companies try and keep it secret and, and work very closely with it. So it's, it's not a black and white type situation at all, is it? There's lots of grey, and yeah. it's a difficult one to manage, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, you know, it is very complex, and I think one of the challenges is that um, is making it look like it's simple. 
So a succession plan with boxes with names in looks like quite a simple document, where actually what you're trying to achieve through it is much more complicated, um, and putting people in boxes is probably not very helpful, either for, for them or the organisation. Um, similarly, the, that one question at the end of the performance review looks like it should be just a one or two word answer. Um, and I think that is a huge issue that um, managers and organisations aren't being creative enough in terms of how they provide development opportunities for people. It's, it's, not, all, it's not, well, the majority of the time it's not about shifting roles. It's about um, providing opportunities within role and expanding roles and carving up roles differently so different people get different um, development opportunities. Um, but people seem to think, it's like, where do you want to be? Or, well, I have to put a job title in there. Um, and that really is very limiting. Yeah. Mm. Uh, interesting. Uh, hi, it's Louis Harvey. Um, I, I only, I came out of salaried employment for the first time in my life uh, last year and am now working for myself. I spent the previous 46 years working for one employer or another. Um, the, at the, my last company, um, yes, we went through the standard process of career reviews. The interesting difference was for the first few years of my tenure, I worked for this particular company for 11 years. Um, it was British-owned, and there was a somewhat more generous spirit in terms of employee development, so much so they paid for most of my studies to become a professional coach and towards my master's degree. The only money I had to fund was the dissertation, <coughs> which I thought was particularly fair. That company was in 2007 taken over by a North American outfit based in Canada, but with a, a investment management office in Connecticut. And over the ensuing three years, as we went into the crash, obviously, business got worse. But the North American reductionist approach to employee costs came in. Everything was reduced to its final, uh, to, its, to, the, to the full extent it could be. Yes, they, all these North American managers made the usual cliches about our uh, staff are our asset, you know, our most valuable asset are the people who work for us. And they did, then did everything possible to keep their pay down, conditions, um, oh, the whole bunch of stuff. So what you hear is the very the, the empty words that they say in the annual report and on the website about how valuable, how much they appreciate the people. Mm. But the subtext is we appreciate you as long as you're cheap and you don't make too much fuss and you don't and let us make as much profit as possible. The other part of this is that I had to create my own career, and even though I put down extra things I'd like to do, um, a couple of them got picked up on. But also, because of my age, I think I was largely overlooked, and mm. it is assumed that career development is for people under the age of 40, mm. not people in their 50s and 60s. Um, when I became a coach... And I continued, and I started doing lots of internal coaching inside that self-same organisation, mm. uh, including dozens of managers who were having 360-degree reviews, managers who'd been recently promoted, senior managers. Mm. One of the key, two or three key things emerged, Antoinette, which is actually very germane to what you've said. One was succession planning, as you've rightly pointed out, and the reason I found out is that most managers were promoted not because they were good managers but because they were technically very very competent at the job they were coming from not the job they were going to mm. so you know, and this here again this takes us back to that wonderful book title what got you here won't get you there mm. the name the, the author's name suddenly escapes me um marshall uh, goldsmith thank goldsmith, you yeah. I've, I've got the current copy of coaching at work across my room front <laughs> <laughs> Um, but his, his, his slogan is absolutely right. And one of the reasons succession planning doesn't happen is simply because the managers are so hell-bent on trying to get themselves embedded as a manager in that job. They, are, they just don't have the 
perspective or the ability to stand back from what's happening around them to stop and think about the vision, the strategic direction. Mm. Um, and one of the things I, had to, I do a lot as a coach is to get managers to unlearn the skills that got them to where they are now because those skills won't get them any further. Mm. And mm. to make room, and this is where co- uh, the second key thing I've done with managers is get them to actually agree how to communicate with their peers, subordinates, and very importantly, their managers. Mm. And on several occasions, I saved people from resigning simply because I actually got them to take a step back and rebuild their communication channel and their relationship with the manager because they came to me complaining it he doesn't understand me and I don't know what to do. And this mm-hmm. is people in their 40s and 50s, not kids. Mm-hmm. So summarizing and picking up very much on, on your key points, Antoinette, there's a number of things that as a coach, and this is obviously now as a supervisor, my supervisees are bringing those issues to me in supervision. Mm. Communication, take a step back, stop and think about what it is to be the manager you truly want to be. Mm. Stop doing the day job, whatever it may be that got you there in the first place, and think about who can you encourage to move on, to take over from you, or encourage to grow and develop and move on elsewhere in the organisation. And I think that's a a great point in terms of bringing on to, I mean, there's probably loads more roles that coaching can play in this, but I've kind of identified three, um, and I call it the ADT model. The first one is actually helping individuals identify what their aspirations are. Um, In a way that uh, I call it getting beneath the job title. Because um, I think that is deeply unhelpful for individuals and organisations. Um, and one of my clients, um, I remember, said to me, yeah, "I'm really struggling. You know, I've got two people in my team who both want to be an account director. Um, he worked for an advertising agency, and he said, um, and I've already got an account director." I don't want to demotivate them. I do want to motivate them and develop them, but I don't see what I can do. I don't see where where I can take them. And I said, well, why do they want to be an account director? What will being an account director give them? And he said, I don't know. And so, you know, he went away and had that conversation. And with one of them, she said, well, I just want to have more exposure to clients um, and I'd like to see how the whole project worked, worked from a multidisciplinary level rather than just my side of things. Um, and he said, oh, right. Oh, well, I can do that. You know, we can work on that. You can come to meetings with me um, and we can, you know, on this new project for whatever client, you know, you can be more involved on that side of things so you can see how it all works. Um, the other person... Um, just wanted more money. Um, and, yeah, she left shortly you know, afterwards because she went traveling or something. Um, but I think those are conversations that don't happen between managers and, and their managers oh, yeah. that coaches can really help with. They can help an individual articulate what their aspirations are in a way that isn't... Um, just kind of holding somebody to ransom or making it really, really difficult because it's not a possibility. Um, and they can also help them prepare for having that conversation. So just as you said, in terms of, you know, how do I manage this communication yeah. um, with the organization? That is a difficult one. Career Conversations around careers are, you know, as challenging, if not more challenging, than the performance review conversations. Um, And no one trains people to have those conversations. They wouldn't dream of people having performance reviews without having those conversations, without getting training. But when it comes to talent review and career development, that that seems to be much lower on the agenda. Um, So I, I think, you know, I think coaches have a real valuable role to play in that kind of aspirations piece 
and then getting that fed back into the organization in a way that the the organization can work effectively with it uh, rather than feel kind of rabbit in headlights. The, the second area is around development. I mean, that's a more traditional um, place that we would always expect coaching to play. Um, but again, it is um, rather disturbing how many organizations go through the talent review and succession planning process, and then the names are on a list, and then everyone goes, oh, thank goodness that process is over for another year. Let's go back to doing what we were doing. Yes, and if I may just bring in another point here from my own personal experience. Absolutely, and I felt precisely that. Oh, that's over and done with. I've got a satisfactory. That means I'll get a pay rise. Let's let's carry on with the day job. The second point is the to do with um, the... In a lot of organizations, even again, this was my own experience, paying lip service to encouraging people to, to apply for promotions and new roles. Um, in the case of a number of reorganizations that happened during my tenure at this particular company, if, Louis, you can't apply for that job. We have, we've got a slate of a uh, short list already. You know, it, in one breath, they're saying we want you to apply for work. In the next minute, they're excluding you because they already have one or two people. They've already made up their minds behind closed doors that they mm. want to apply for this job. Mm. And then they wonder why they don't keep people yes. when it's actually other competitors are making it very easy for people to apply for jobs. Yes, indeed. Um, just one one thing that I've I've noticed is in terms of why people um, kind of leave and go to, to other jobs. Um, I, I'm involved in an organisation where it's very topical right now, and, and there's a dynamic that I've observed that might be just useful to, to throw out there, and it's that when people are applying for new jobs, they're, they're usually applying um, through a process that's had some future vision, even mm -hmm. if that's on the back of somebody having left. Quite often people think, so what do we need of this role? What do we want for the future? So they're, they're moving into a future state quite often. Mm. And people who are in organizations as part of a talent management process are almost part of a process that's in the past. Mm. And, 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 so, and so I think it's, it's quite easy for people to kind of see a route forward. Um, and in some cases, the only way they see a route forward is by looking outside. Mm. And for me, the challenge... Is, is is to manage that duplicity, which is what's the requirement now in our organization and who's doing well and who's performing well, which is performance management, versus what's the requirement of the future, mm. which is what's our succession plan, what does it need to be? Mm. And I think what I've seen recently that makes that very wonky is, is this overwhelming desire to reward loyalty and to reward people who have been in the business for quite a long time and often they are so not what the business needs going forward, and and, and somehow that gets caught up um, in the talent management process. That's mm. something that I'm definitely seeing um, in two organisations that, that I'm working with. Um, and I think the people that are, if you like, heading up the talent management review process conversation, whatever it is, are are a bit stuck. Mm. In that, I, I'd be interested on your view on that, Antoinette. No, I think you're you're right, and I think actually that's one of the um, I think that's probably one of the drivers that kind of forces organisations into um, developing talent by acquiring talent from outside, rather than necessarily being creative about developing talent inside, because if all your talent identification and development is done by the present incumbents mm. who are you know, likely to um, develop in their own likeness, when actually what you want mm. is to move on from their likeness, then you're going to end up with that kind of yeah. stuckness that you're describing. Um, and, and so the, the easiest thing to do is kind of go away from all of that completely and have a recruiter doing it by looking at yeah. people outside the organisation. Um, which is, yeah, which is expensive, and um, and then does, you know, doesn't um, reward the people in the organisation that maybe should be rewarded. 
but they're not necessarily going to be the same ones that have been um, there doing a great job forever. Um, it, it all depends on who's got the right skill set for the future, as you say. Um, and I think the whole kind of development of competencies doesn't always help us either because you've got this lovely you know, leadership behavior framework, say, that was developed three years ago, five years ago, seven years ago. Um, and we spent a lot of money on it, and so that's what we develop against. And again, it's like, well, is that still relevant? Mm. Is that still mm. up to date? Is that taking us to the future, or is that just keeping us in the present? Yeah, thank you. Um, and just a, just one final point before we get into the implications for supervision. Um, the, the third role I see is in the transition piece. Um, and again, I think you know, it's, it's one thing putting the names in boxes, then you need to make sure that if you think they're going to be ready for a more senior role in two years' time, that you do something with them that improves their readiness for that um, by the time the time comes. But then that's not the end of it. It's actually helping them make that transition into that new role because as you identified, it, even if they are the right person um, and they have the skills and capabilities, the likelihood is that they'll be moving from one role to a very different role, and that's a huge transition to manage. Um, and yeah, I remember a client saying to me, he had been on the succession plan for years, he knew he'd been on the succession plan for years, and then the opportunity came, and it was almost like he was pushed off a cliff. It was like, right, here you go, mate. Here's your opportunity. And that was it. And um, yeah, he'd been sat kind of looking at this role for a long time. But then when he was put in it, it was overwhelming. Um, yeah. And he was given no support to, to cope with that. Yeah, and absolutely, I've, I, I can so resonate with that, having managers who've been as you say dropped in it from a great height and they and the the other side of this is that, and I especially see this in sales forces which is where I spent most of my working life that often the best sales people are promoted to become the sales manager because they are the best salesperson mm. and within six months because they're floundering they don't know how to manage they're not mm. team these people they're so individually focused that often they end up getting fired because they're not producing the results for themselves or their team. Mm -hmm. And the company's lost out twice um, in terms of losing a talent, losing someone who was very good at what they did. But the moment they got promoted, mm -hmm. they, they, they were out of their depth. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, there's going to be a, a, a lag anyway in terms of, you know, um, moving into a new role. But as you say, that can then be interpreted as not performing um, mm. just when, you know, everything is shifting around them. Um, and, you know, as you, as you identified, some, some things have to be unlearned and some new skills have to be learned. Very much so. I, I just have a, a quick question, Antoinette. Have, have you um, had a conversation with our friend David Clutterbuck at all about this? Have you, has, have you been engaged in any conversations with him? I haven't, no, and I would love to, but I haven't. It's a, sh it's a shame he's, he's, he's not with us now because it prompts me to kind of perhaps think about another um, function that coaching can perform. Just if I understand his, um, his, his thoughts on succession planning correctly, and if I don't, then forgive me. I mean, you've um, very beautifully put aspiration, development, and transition as three functions of coaching. And, and there's possibly another one in line with his thinking, which is, you know, promote people, put them in the jobs, put them in roles where there's a massive gap, mm. and let them develop on the job in the role. Mm. My understanding of where David comes from is he's basically saying succession planning over a period is, is basically useless. Mm. Um, and, and so potentially there's a, a, a fourth role of coaching, which is, you know, forget succession planning promote people and give them the coaching and support they need albeit they're going to there's going to be a big gap in that role so rather than developing people for a future state mm. 
just promote them and give them the development they need. Mm, um, mm. And I may have completely misrepresented, Peter, you might be able to help me here, completely misrepresented where David's coming from, but that's, I think that's kind of his supposition, I think. That's what he's putting out there right now. No, I think that's right. I think he's spot on with that. He's, he's just saying kind of, you know, feel the fear, do it anyway, and, mm. and it's kind of forcing the issue and making the resources support that person, just just do it. So I think it's it's kind of a interesting, quite provocative way of developing people. <laughs> I mean, I, and I mean, I'm involved in some some supervision with somebody who is is actually I'm supervising her team coaching, if you like. So she has a big team, and she's been thrust into a new role, um, and there's a massive gap. So my supervision of her coaching her people, so it's an internal coaching arrangement, is all about helping her, um, you know, as a team coach, take a step back and coach the team rather than do the work. And it's come, as uh, uh, Louis, I think you were saying, it's a completely different job. So technically, she's brilliant, mm. um, but she's having to learn new systems, new approaches, and definitely new behaviours, mm. and understand her own fears of letting go and all of that great stuff, in order to to perform well in this role. And 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 she is on record as saying, I never would have thought that actually my new job—it's a director role would be actually completely different day-to-day than the functional role that I performed as head of. Um, and, and luckily the organisation recognised they were putting her in um, quite a volatile situation because she was ill-equipped. And I've been lucky, and along with somebody else, kind of working with her um, for the last seven months to kind of fill that gap. But And that showed up in the coaching room. I've discovered this of her because I've been you know, supervising her shift from managing to coaching and she's operating a coaching model with her people. Mm. Um, and I just wanted to share that because I, in, in my experience, I've never experienced an organisation being that gung-ho and that brave, actually. Um, and, and at the same time, supportive because, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of cultures that just, um, you know, that, that would be dangerous because if, if she floundered, She'd be, you know, the knees would be cut from beneath her, and that would be that. Um, yeah. I think that this begs the question, and certainly something I've challenged managers to do, is to al- allow people to make mistakes. Mm. And this is the whole, this is a whole area of learning that organ, uh, a whole philosophy that organisations who claim to be open quotes learning organisations close mm. quote. Mm to fall down on is that they want perfection and often the people learn the best way by making mistakes now there are mistakes and mistakes clearly you don't want anyone to physically hurt themselves or people around them that's fair Mm -hmm. enough but there are a huge number of things in a commercial organization where you can people will learn Mm -hmm. effectively from not getting it right the first time round and a manager should be able to embrace that, and, and they don't. The, uh, funny enough, I had a conversation with David Clutterbuck about 18 months ago, uh, two, yeah, 18, 18 months, two years ago. Um, he came into my uh, company's offices for a chat, and one of the things he was uh, discussed, he mentioned is the work he's done where he'd been talking with what he called uh, working with young Turks and I use his phrase not mine and he said one of the ways to get people to actually experience decision making and management is to have uh, what he called the, the a shadow board mm. so that or you've got the executive leadership team for example but alongside that is a shadow team of people who are uh, aspirant who are aspiring to get promoted and do that job mm. and the manager's let them a shadow board listen to what's being said it gives them exposes them to the uh, experience of making high level business decisions mm. and they can learn in an environment where um again if they make a mistake or they've got something wrong no, no one's get no one gets hurt mm-hmm. and that's what i mean by about people being creative about development mm. opportunities yeah um you know, and rather than, you know, limited to, well, it's either, you know, get promoted to this job or it's going on a training course. 
yeah, yeah. When, when there's kind of thousands of other options in between. So what does all this mean to supervision then? I, I think for me, certainly with my supervisees, they are bringing their concerns very much. Those who are, uh, sorry, let me say this again. The supervisees I'm working with often bring stories, incidents, exactly like this, where they're dealing with board-level people or people who are one level below board and being groomed for promotion, people who have been promoted to a senior level within the organization and are failing, for want of a better word, at the job. And um, also, and what do they do? How do they manage it? Mm. So it enables me to actually discuss the supervisee to discuss with me options, have they thought this through? Mm. And one of the challenges often is that the coach, this, my supervisee, is so focused on making this person successful mm. that they have actually overlooked the key question. You were promoted, did you want it, and are you really happy in what you're doing? Mm. And they're so, so focused on, oh, I've got to make this person a success, they actually haven't asked them how did they get there in the first place, and do they really want it? Do they really want to be there at all? Mm. Mm. Good question. I think um, that that challenge for the coach of being on both the business side and the employee side <coughs> is an interesting one in terms of um, you know, balancing those two things. Yes, absolutely. I had um, a recent challenge from my supervisor. Um, I'm working with with a person who um, is struggling in role. That they, just as you describe, you know, what comes into supervision is supervisees. Um, so I was that supervisee talking to my supervisor, saying, you know, I'm working with this person, um, and I talked through the scenario, the context, and and then my supervisor said to me, so. Do you think he can make it then? Do you think he is actually capable of doing this role? And of course, my world came crashing around because the answer was that, well, actually, no. So, mm-hmm. so what are the implications for me as a as a coach sitting in that organisational system? And it took my supervisor very gracefully to point this out to me, um, which I'm eternally grateful for. But but here I am sitting in this organisational system working through, um, you know, a, a a development program. This is part of a wider program with somebody who, you know, I, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, well, this is really probably a stretch too far. And, um, you know, we have talked about that. I've talked about that with my coachee. Um, but there's like a fixed loop going on because, because this person's been promoted, um, I think, the organization calls it punching above your weight, which is not terribly helpful. Um, there's an inherent problem with then putting your hand up saying, and I'm really struggling because, as Antoinette pointed out, what then happens to that person? Um, and, and, and it's, it's you know, for me, it's it's very real, and I experience this quite a, a lot, not, not, you know, my not thinking they can do it, but the people I'm coaching being caught in a system that doesn't account for um, or doesn't make way for the conversations to be had around I'm really struggling Mm. Um, somehow it doesn't seem to be okay once you've been promoted and you're the golden one or the chosen one there's no route back somehow Mm. And, and, and I think as a as a supervisor that's um you know that that's the system's really strong around that um, and, and I and I just get a sense that in the absence of, you know, good talent discussions around aspiration or even talent discussions around the real development that needs to take place, mm-hmm. um, I, I predict that um, this is going to be a bit of a theme. I, I'd be interested in what other people think, actually. Well, I'm actually quite interested in because we're, we're talking about coaches and supervisees and and really what's the difference um 
And the only things that spring to my mind at the moment are the number of stakeholders involved, the higher you yes. go up yeah. the company and you become a leader, I suppose. Mm -hmm. uh, the culture of the company, so that fits the supervision model as well. Uh, and and one of, probably one of the biggest issues is how do you break through L&D teams or HR control or whatever it is um, to get the message across because they tend to be quite protective environments. Mm -hmm. so there are sort of two or three things that strike me about, well, okay, so how does the supervision model really uh, support change in this area? That's a great question. Is that you, Neil? Is that Neil? Uh, if it's a good question, it's me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you sound very much like Louis on the call. Thank you, Neil. <laughs> Antoinette, do you, do you have any thoughts? I think that's a great question. Uh, yes, I, I, um, I guess the thing that struck me, I don't know whether it's uh, it's pertinent to that point or something different, I guess, you know, to your point of the of it becoming a theme. One of the things that I'm doing this week and next week is training in-house um, coaches to have career to have career conversations or to coach around career development issues because one of the things that keeps coming up for them is career stuff. So um, I, I'm quite impressed that their head of talent is um, forward-thinking enough to therefore help equip the in-house coaches who are... I think they're quite newly trained in-house coaches and they've been trained in a performance coaching model. So I suspect they feel a little out of their depths when people start coming to them with career stuff. Um, but I also sense that they will be, you know, like the supervisees you've mentioned, um, you know, they're kind of, they might feel that they're stuck between a bit of a rock and a hard place um, because they're, they're there for the organisation as well as for the individuals that they're supporting. Um, I, I, I don't know how that relates to the point that Neil just made, in all honesty, but that was the point that came into my head. <coughs> Does it relate, Neil, or have I said something completely... No, no, I, I, th I think it's all interwoven somehow, and I, I, I am having problems because we've been having one or two discussions sort of outside this on the whole topic where <clears throat> we, you know, a number of us believe supervision should have a, a bigger impact in that it's, it adds um, greater reflection and in some ways intensity and focus on on the sort of wider issues somehow than coaching. Mm -hmm. But how you put that into words and how you would express it to leadership teams or uh, L&D person responsible or whatever mm. it's quite difficult to get or I find it quite difficult to get the message across mm. I, I find this quite interesting because I mean <clears throat> I, I've, I've got some of your slides and one of them is this um, the improved self-confidence bit everybody I've coached um, going from team leader to executive confidence is, is always a key issue and it's the thing they can never actually say to um, their boss because it's mm sign of weakness mm -hmm. and, and your comment earlier on about improved relationships generally but particularly I'm, I'm taken on by the manager <coughs> who um, wants the team leader or the, the, the manager below to improve and, and you're absolutely right a key part of that is how the two of them communicate in the first place so mm -hmm. somebody takes me on and then I've got to coach their, their per, the person responsible then so how do they commun communicate better with their boss Mm. So and 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 through working with people like this, you've also got on your slide uh, the improved life work balance because a lot of people just think, oh, well, I've got to do more of it and I've got to work longer hours and mm. you know, to be better, I've got to do this. Mm. When reality, if they can do the opposite and they give themselves more thinking time, mm. they can do a far better job. But also, they can have a life outside work. So all, all of these things are so interrelated. Mm. Often, how you get the message across to the the purchaser, if you like, of coaching or supervision uh, is quite an interesting one. I know you do a lot of marketing, and I'd like to thank you for a lot of your information because it really helped my daughter's thesis at Reading University last week. <laughs> I hope she got a good mark anyway, but I've <laughs> quite a bit of your information because it's really good stuff because you're 
you're putting numbers behind it and using different surveys and things like that. But it's it's quite an intricate area, and it's um, I'm a bit simplistic really, and it's quite difficult to I don't know carve out the niche or how to get the message across. So well, it's been interesting. Mm. I'm still confused, but it's still interesting. <laughs> and I I just like to pick up on um, what I've taken from what you've said, Neil. It's in you know, to me, it's 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 a, a broader question, and, and maybe it's one, you know, we could come back to at some point, or invite someone to lead um, a discussion on. And, and what I heard you say is, is how can supervision support this? And and the, this I heard was enable people and organisations to have, you know, more time for reflection, because essentially that's the essence of supervision. Mm. Um, and and I'm reminded of a conversation I had. Um, about a leadership development program that's that's desired in an organisation, and I was working with the, the the board, and and I I tried to invite some reflection on this, and I simply said, you know, leadership for what? What do you want out of this leadership program? I wasn't consulting, I wasn't coaching, I was simply offering some reflection, mm. and and actually there was no clarity, um, well, no agreement for a start, but no clarity in the room on what. The executives wanted collectively from that leadership program mm. what was it in service of they argued what type of leaders do they need to take the business forward they really hadn't thought about it mm. and I was pulling upon my frameworks from my supervision practice in leading that conversation so, so when I think about Peter's you know seven-eyed model which I think has got eight eyes now but seven-eyed model I was thinking you know about all the different stakeholders, the relationships between the managers and their people and what do they all need from a leadership development program. And so and you, you've just made me think, Neil, that in, the, that in that moment I was supervising that discussion and until you put that into our conversation, I hadn't really realised that, but that's what I was doing. So, so I think, I don't know, I get a sense that supervision can support a lot of reflection in organisations. Goodness knows how we how we sell that or take it into an organisation. You know, <laughs> give me permission to come supervise your thinking and give you some reflection time. It kind of doesn't work, does it? So, mm. yeah, but I mean, I've, I've worked with quite and on quite a few boards, and they tend to do the opposite of what we're saying. It's all, all sort of gung ho and very quick and everything like that. Yeah, I think the basis of 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 getting somewhere is is often on away days where people yes. are away from the office. They actually have a you know they might have a night drinking as well, but actually they've got more hours and and they are looking at things like succession management. So one of the companies I'm on the board of, they've gone the John Lewis route with employee ownership. They've got a shadow board, but a shadow board is like about 25 years younger, so they're real youngsters. There's a massive, wow. massive gap. But but the principle is good. Um, mm. Yeah, whether they'll ever get there, I think one or two probably will actually. But but the sort of the essence of what they're trying to do is good. But um, but that's pretty rare. I don't, I've not really come across it in many companies. You know, where the sort of board or the senior management are open enough to. And particularly in insurance, because I've come from an insurance background as well, Antoinette. I mean, insurance is a little bit like sort of in the dark ages, you know, where it's male-dominated and um, uh, and a bit like the you know, school ground, boys' school ground, you know, when mm. you're board mm. level and things. So. Mm. Mm. Hmm. so it's interesting to, you know, how do you translate the positives of what we've talked about today in, in such a way that you can get people to listen and change their ways, really? Mm. Yeah. Picking up on that point, certainly one of my supervisees brought has brought in some real horror stories about behaviour at board level, the political infighting between board members, and the fact that her coachee was the chief exec who was spending more time separate. She was the lady chief exec. The main, most of the board members were male and she was spending most of the time almost separating them and trying to get them to stop squabbling with each other and make up and get on. Mm. What seemed to be lacking was a complete sense of uh, purpose other than their own personal self-aggrandizement. And, you know, this is where the if you have 
leadership where you're not focused, and this is where coaching can help a lot, you end up with people just fighting and sniping each other. Mm-hmm. becomes, in its worst extreme, white-collar industrial sabotage. Mm. And I've seen companies nearly brought down because of the infighting at board level, the lack of unity and the lack of purpose. Yes. And, and, I, and I think increasingly, um, I know we talked about this when we um, had a webinar with, with Peter, with Peter Hawkins. We, we were making parallels between team coaching and supervision, where in essence, when we're coaching teams or working with boards, quite a lot of the time we are supervising their work of their teams and of their individuals. So we were noticing the similarities between team coaching and supervision anyway. Um, and, and, you know, what's in the title, probably everything. But I, I can't imagine having a dialogue with a board and talking about and using the word supervision and that, and that being acceptable. So I think, you know, perhaps, you know, the industry has... A, a challenge there in terms of making it kind of better understood or even changing the name. Mm, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I just find it inaccessible and, and very misunderstood. Um, but when I look at, you know, and I know we've talked about this before, when we look at our practices, you know, our practice of supervision is is is, is shows up, I believe, all the time when we are working with people who manage other people. Um particularly because a lot of that management model nowadays is transacted through a coaching model. So I think we supervise all the time, I, I suppose. Um, yeah, I just um, wanted to share that. I, I think you're, you're right, Jackie. I think there is probably a branding issue. I think coaching has become accepted as a business tool in in organisations and corporate life. I think supervision, not so much. Um, and so I think part of the challenge is how do you convince um, hardcore business people that um, these practices will help them deliver business results Um, and that is the beginning of another um, conversation I suspect I was going to say it's Peter it sounds like a fantastic uh, forum we should hold in the near future for all of us (laughs) Doesn't it? That that would actually be that would be very powerful. Um, I, I'm I'm just noticing I'm just noticing time, so I just want to check with everyone that um, my my proposal is that that we perhaps invite a last comment and then um, a, a last observation from Antoinette if she feels able to give one. Um, so a last comment from somebody. Uh, well, I'm still confused, but I believe if you're confused, you're still learning. So that's positive, isn't it? <laughs> I really enjoyed the conversation and it r- highlights common experiences and yeah. Uh, yeah we have certainly the message I'm taking away is that perhaps what, a role not perhaps one of the roles we have as supervisors is to be able to sit inside the system within which our supervisees and coaches function the political system the organisational system so you know, back to Peter Hawkins and the seven-eyed model and also the full-spectrum model uh, used by uh, the Coaching Supervision Academy. Uh, we need, we, it is imperative that we are understand this world and how we can help and support our supervisees as they, as they attempt to support their coaches. Yeah, yeah I call that, Peter. Just to say also... I've Sadly, keeping quiet, but shaking, you know, uh, nodding my head a lot to some of the points Antoinette was bringing up, and you did too, Louis, having worked inside a, an American culture for quite a few years, um, but also individually sort of consulted, and I see a lot of those sort of issues around. And it's still sad that some of them are still there, almost to the sort of extent of fighting the culture, which is odd, really, isn't it, the roles we get put in. But I'd be really interested to see if uh, we could take that whole conversation onto another level. And, and thank you, Antoinette, for, for really broaching it well for us and making us really focus on the talent issue. It's worth doing, you know, several times, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really yeah. appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Antoinette. Thank you. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It's been um, lovely to talk to you, but also to get your views. And, um, and yes, I, I mean, I do think coaching has an invaluable role to play. 
And I think because it is such a challenging area, supervision then also has an invaluable role to play in supporting the people doing that coaching. For sure. Great. Brilliant. Thank you very much.